Sarah Brazier, welcome to the Up and Up. Stoked to have you here. I'm excited to be here. It's been three, four, five-ish months, six months since. When did we? So for some context, Sarah and I were on the same team at Gong. And then who left first? Was it You did. Me? I left first. I left first, took a month off, went to Tropic. You've since left Gong. You are on this faux retirement journey. I, I need to hear before we dive into anything else, like what is faux retirement? What does that entail? And uh, how amazing is it? Faux <laughs> retirement is fake retirement. <laughs> I'm not retired, but I'm pretending to be. Um, and it's just it's just a hiatus from work. So it entails doing very boring, mundane things on a regular basis and um, getting some much needed R&R. I love that. That's amazing. And you, when you decided to leave, did you set out with like any kind of intent? Like, I'm going to go pretend to be retired for X amount of time? Or was it just kind of like, I'm just going to step away, see where things take me? What was your approach? Um, I knew that I was going to take about three months off. And then I was going to do a self-assessment and decide if I was ready to get back into the workforce and start working again, or wanted to take some more time. And I also wanted to just kind of think about like, what is my next step? What kind of company do I want to work for? What kind of job do I want to have? Do I want to be selling? Do I want to do enablement? Do I want to do marketing? Um, things like that. But I, I think that like when you're selling at um, such a high growth, like fast paced company, you can very much just be caught up in the day to day. And, um, you don't necessarily have an opportunity to like bring your head up above the water and take a breath and look yeah. around and go, Oh, this is what, this is what I could do next. Or this is what I want to do next. So I just needed like an opportunity to catch my breath and, and think. I feel like it's almost like high school and college where there's like a track. It's like, you register for these classes? If this is your major, like this is the trajectory you're on. And when you're in that like high growth mode, it's like, there's always another promotion. There's always a track. There's a next thing. And you get like really siloed. It's like a small world view. It's like, this is, these are my options, right? After taking time off, you're coming up on this three month mark. What are you thinking through now? Like, have you kind of landed on something you want to do next? Are you still working through that? Um, so I told myself I wasn't going to think about anything during the three okay. months. And I was just going to like decompress and enjoy, enjoy being, you know, a dog mom. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy enjoy going to the gym like um enjoy living in new york i think one of the hard things is we moved to new york um like two years ago and pandemic was still happening mm -hmm. took us a while to find a place to live um because that's when the housing market was like super booming in new york city and then i was working from home ramping into my bid market role and then trying to break into new territories. So I was just working a lot and being in like one room instead of in one of the coolest, biggest cities in the world. It was like, I should probably go, go like leave my house. <laughs> yeah. The irony of being in New York and then just staying in your house is Yeah. That's pretty insane. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I should probably go, go do that. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't remember what the question was, but I mean, that's what I was doing. That's what I've been okay. doing. Well, here I am, like during your three month period, applying pressure as far as what you want to do next. So we'll avoid that topic because I want you to have that full three month retirement. I'm super, super excited to see what you do end up doing next. Um, and I think what's so cool or what I'm excited about with this podcast is like you and I know each other decently well. Like we were on the same team for a little while. We worked together for multiple years, but like I don't think we've ever talked for an hour and just like shared stories. I don't think I've ever even asked you about your career path. And that's kind of a shame because candidly, like, I don't think I ever would have started posting on LinkedIn if it wasn't for you. You were kind of like, you, you kind of set the like precedent, like this is a real thing that you can create if you just put good content out and share what you learn, etc. And I've also always really admired your authenticity on LinkedIn. And that's something I tried to emulate as well. I'd like to go back to like, you used to be an actor. And mm -hmm. now you are like amassed a pretty massive following because of sales. Like how, how did you get from acting to sales? What was that transition like? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that the people might think that there's a 
big leap between acting and sales, but I don't think there is. Um, Hmm. So I think like, so, so if you want to think about like the life of being an actor, um, it is a hustle, it's a grind and you're constantly selling yourself. So in the same way that in sales, you're knocking on doors, doing cold calls, answering RFP is like trying to find the next opportunity and the next deal to work and get into. And then, and then you basically run that project until the deal closes and then you pass it off to customer success. You're kind of doing that in theater or, um, I mostly did theater. Like I did a couple like small commercials and little film things, but usually that's because someone that I knew was like, Hey, we need someone and I know you and can you come do this? Like we only have two days before we have to start shooting. I'd be like, sure. Um, but, uh, what you do in theater is you have your pitch, which is you have a couple different monologues. You've got your funny one, you've got your dramatic one, you've got a couple different characters that you play and you practice them all the time, just like you do when you practice your, hmm. your cold call and you practice it less, the better you, you get at it. And then you shop it around, you go to auditions. So, there are big cattle calls where there's a bunch of directors or producers for different theater companies that are sitting in a big theater and you get up in front of all of them and you do your pitch. Um, but a lot of time you're going to auditions for like one show and, um, or like a cattle call for just that theater company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you show up and you do your monologues and they take some notes. And if they like you, they call you back, which is like, great, we got a call. We can do the discovery call now. And then, they have you do a couple more things, a couple more readings. They might ask you some questions. And then from there, you find out if you get the job or not. And then once you get the job, you get a whole big script with a bunch of lines and um, a bunch of other people that you're working with. And you um, have to figure out how do we turn uh, ink on paper into a living, breathing, believable experience for our audience. And um there's a lot of things that are, you know, similar to a sales cycle where you're collaborating with different people. You might get into arguments about the best way to approach a scene or, you know, you're having to find different pathways to success or, you know, maybe you, you know, if you're doing a very small theater project, maybe you don't have the resources that are initially you thought you did. So you have to get creative, especially if you're, you know, like being an assistant director or something. Um, um, and then, uh, and then there's a lot of like, tactically, how do I approach a character? How do I approach these different moments? And I think, um, that, that is very much like the human psychology aspect that you have when you're thinking hmm. about sales. So in sales, it's a little bit more like improv where, you know, you're about to walk into a phone call and, uh, or a meeting and there's a scenario, there's an objective, just like before we started recording this, you told me what the objective of this podcast would be. There's an objective that you want to accomplish at the end of that meeting. And you know that there's a couple ways it could go. And um, mm. you can imagine different scenarios of how this person would respond based off of who they are and how much you've gotten to know about them. And, um, and like all of that to me is just like how I imagine like how I imagine myself in a scene when I know the lines that the other person is going to say. And so I'm thinking about how I should say them and what the intent of the character is and Hmm. how the emotions that it would elicit in that person. And then I have to respond to them because they might be feeding something back that I wasn't, that I hadn't predicted. And so there's that back and forth. Um, all that's so interesting. Yeah. There's Um, so many parallels. It clearly worked too. The transition worked. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, I think uh, a lot, there's a lot of people I know who have been actors and have gone in and had really fruitful sales, sales careers after. So I had never even thought of like that amount of overlap too. Like it's like preparation to an extent, but you still have to react live based on how someone delivers a line. And there's like a ton of EQ involved. And that's, that's super interesting. What, what like, were you acting and then you're like, I need more money the sales thing feels lucrative or how did you even get exposed to like the industry in the first place? Yeah. So my dad was in sales. So I've always like known what the life of a salesperson was. He was not in software sales. He was selling, um, he worked for general electric and a couple other companies, basically the same company, um, that was like acquired by GE. And then it was acquired by a company called Suez. 
Um, and before that, I think it was called BETS, but they sell water purification equipment. So this is like reverse osmosis. You have a nuclear power plant. How do you make sure that they're not polluting the local waterways? Or, you know, like Jim Beam was one of his clients. How do you make sure that the river that, or the creek that you've been, you know, collecting water for to make your Jim Beam is not being polluted because now there's a highway next to it and blah, blah, blah. So he traveled a lot, but um, my dad and I have really similar personalities. And he always told me that he thought I would be good at sales. And then uh, my first job out of college, um, my first, first job out of college for like three months, I worked at the buckle and sold jeans. Um, but nice. <laughs> but I got a job at the National Speech and Debate Association. And um, I ran their social media marketing and I wrote um, curriculum for speech and debate and just did like a bunch of random hmm. stuff. But um, Scott One uh, is the director of the NSDA, and his brother-in-law is a big sales guy and needed someone to edit a video for him. And I knew how to do that. So he's like, I, Sarah can do it. They called me the intern, even though I wasn't an intern. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, our intern can do that for you. So I did, and I got to know, um, I got to know his brother-in-law. And he, he was always like, you'd be great at sales. And then basically everywhere I went, every time I ran into a salesperson, they'd always say, oh, you'd be great at sales. You should do sales. So eventually I was living in San Francisco. I was working um, like multiple jobs. I was a barista and I coached speech and debate down in Fremont, which is like, you know, depending on your drive from San Francisco, it could be an hour plus depending on traffic. Um, and then I also worked at the front desk of... Optimizely, uh, part-time, welcoming people and making sure that you know packages were sorted, and um, and then I would go to rehearsal in the evenings and on weekends for whatever show I was doing. So I like added it all up, and I was working like ninety hours a week, and I worked every single day of the week. Oh um, and I still was not making any money because uh, you can do a show that pays you well and but it's for theater, which is still like minimum wage. And then, um, you could do a show that isn't equity. Therefore they don't have like, um, uh, rules around payments or breaks and stuff like that. Um, and you know, you are getting paid like $500 for two months of 20 hours a week kind of work. <laughs> and, um, and the shows that I wanted to do that, would pay me more money and help me get my equity card. Those were like rehearsing in the middle of the day. So it was just really hard to like find opportunities where I could keep working like a day job or a second job and make enough money to pay my rent. So um, eventually while I was working at the front desk of Optimizely, I talked to this guy, Jim Jones, who ran enablement for them at the time. And I said, you do sales stuff, right? Because I didn't really know what enablement was. And he was like, yeah, I've been in sales and I run enablement here. And I've been, you know, in the industry for like 30, 40 years, I can tell you stuff. So I said, can I just, can I just talk to you about your job? And um, I talked to Jim a lot. I talked to um, the head of their, the, their CMO. I talked to pretty much everybody at that company and just would ask them on coffee dates um, during my 20, 20 minute break my 20 minute lunch break. And, um, uh, Jim helped me find my first sales job. He introduced me to a couple SDRs. I shadowed some at, at Optimizely. And eventually I, I got a job SDRing, which I was very bad at, um, at my first company spent six months not hitting quota. And, uh, but they were, you know, paying me <laughs> far <laughs> yeah. more money than I was making as an actor. So, um, that was really exciting. So even though I was living off of like my OTE, which was probably like $30,000 annually in San Francisco, which is a 30 K is a lot in certain parts of the U S but it's not a lot not San in Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. I was like, man, I am rolling in it. I'm making money. Like that's how poor <laughs> I was. <laughs> Do you feel like the, like uh, the grind and rejection of auditioning and like the amount of hours for X amount of output? set you up to like persevere through the SDR role? Do you feel like there was a lot of carryover there? Yeah, definitely. The, the other thing that I tell people is I think my background in speech and debate set me up for that really well yeah, too. Oh my gosh, it's insane. Yeah. Like in speech and debate, I did that all through high school and college. And that's, um, 
you know, that's, it's like, it's like competitive acting where you get, you get judged and you get scaled on a, you get rated on a scale of one to 10 or one to six, six is the worst person in the room. One's the best person in the room. There are no ties. And you go through like, you know, brackets where you do a bunch of, uh, rounds and then your scores get added up and then you do a break round to like the top 12 and then to the top six, stuff like that. But you get a ballot back for every single performance you do. And, um, you know, criticism from the judge and some of them are really mean and some of them are nice and not too, like too nice and not helpful, but you're looking to try to figure out like, what did I do wrong? What do I need to do differently? So when you're working with your coach, you're constantly trying to understand like, why, why didn't I get the one in the room? What, Hmm. what would separate me? And I think, um, you know, doing that since like high school and I did theater all as, as a kid, you know, you're constantly receiving coaching and feedback from something that's very personal, like it's a very emotional thing is acting because you're trying to seek inside yourself and try to understand how do I emulate a feeling? How do I create this concept? How do I, how do I exist as another person on, on stage and, yeah. and move people? So I think it's, to, to me, it's like a, a, a more emotional and personal experience than like when I played a sport um, and getting feedback on it, constant feedback. So I never really had a problem with like people hanging up on me or, um, getting coaching from managers. The only time I ever like really pushed back is when I was like, actually, I don't think that's my problem. I think there's something else. And I think it's this thing. And then like being able to have a a dialogue with, with a manager or a coach or whomever going like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that bit that's not sticking. I think it's something else, something before trying to figure out like the root cause of what's not working. That's so interesting. Wait, and you also, you said you were doing like social and content related stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So when you came into the sales world, like you already kind of had experience like creating content and putting stuff out there. Did yeah. that help you with like cuz where did it, like so from my perspective, I get hired fresh out of college to Gong as an SDR. And Sarah Brazier is all over LinkedIn. I knew your name before I knew about Gong. Like quite literally, that was when I opened LinkedIn, like I'd see your name out there. And so in, in my world, like when you work at Gong, there's this not expectation, but there's like this reality that there's a path towards posting content and it gaining traction because like you had paved that path. Was that path paved by someone else when you started your career or was that because of your background? Like how did you even get the idea to create content that's so much different than what is already on LinkedIn, which is like job updates and like super canned like company related posts? Yeah. So, um, I always like, I I went through fate. I've gone through like social media phases where like when Snapchat first came out before, like, I don't, I don't love what Snapchat turned into, but like when Snapchat first came out, which you were probably like in high school, like maybe you're in middle school. I don't know. Like (laughs) I was an early adopter of Snapchat and I used to make stuff all the time. And I thought I was so funny. Um, (laughs) And, um, and this is when like the, like the, the news page of Snapchat was actually interesting. It was like national geographic, Mm -hmm. like that's the Snapchat I remember. Um, and I was like, Instagram, like no one's on Instagram, but now everyone's on Instagram again. And then like, I haven't even dabbled in TikTok. Um, yeah, stay away. (laughs) Yeah. So slippery slope. So, um, yeah, like I always had fun making content and I loved writing. Um, and um, at Gong, there were like a couple people who posted. Um, mostly it was Chris Orlob and Chris would write blogs and then he would write posts and, you know, people would or prospect off his posts all the time. So it wasn't like um, I was like trying to emulate Chris or like copycat him or anything, but. I definitely knew that, oh, um, this company doesn't discourage posting online. Mm-hmm. Like no one's going to be upset if I post it. So what's like, what's the risk? And I also um, had, you know, rules in my brain for what, what's okay to share on LinkedIn versus what's not okay. And I, you know, I think they're pretty practical base rules. Um, But there's something fun, like something funny happened at work. 
I had called a guy in Q4. I called him a couple times and I called him and he finally picked up and he got mad at me for calling him. And I wrote about it and the post went viral. And it's the most viral any of my posts have ever gone. Yeah, 11,000 likes. I just checked it out earlier yeah. today. That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And so that's like the that's a, that's like the maybe first post. That's like one of the first posts I ever did on LinkedIn. If you go back through, like if you scroll all the way back, there's like maybe two posts before that. But that was it. And so I just happened to get really lucky. Mm. And I think going viral on LinkedIn was much easier back then, back, the, the algorithm back then, five, five six years ago. Um, 2019. So, um, yeah, I like, there's just this huge, I mean, it was crazy. Like I posted and we were doing an SDR outing. So I posted that morning and then we left and then I checked my LinkedIn and it was Whoa. just exploding. And I, well, at first I checked Slack on my phone and I, everyone was like, dude, Sarah, your LinkedIn is blowing up. And I was like, what? And then I checked my LinkedIn and I had like literally hundreds of connection requests and <laughs> these likes and my inbox was just exploding and people wanted me to be a consultant for them. People were like offering me jobs. Just kind of like, hold on. I, what? <laughs> um, yeah. Wild. Yeah. So then I was like, well, um, I bet I'll just, I'll, I'll ride this wave. So I posted again the next day, something stupid about coffee. I posted again the day after something stupid about running. Just like me. I treated it like I treated my, uh, college Twitter, which was also really stupid. I think I've deleted like a lot of, a lot of stuff. No one don't, don't anyone. Nobody look go look, no, no stalking on the. <laughs> yeah. I think my, there was a period where my Twitter was really funny. Cause it was just me making fun of my sister's chihuahua for like three months. But, <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, the, the post just kept doing really well and kept going viral. Cause then I think LinkedIn was like, if one post does well, then they would boost like your next couple mm. posts. And then those kept doing well. And so then I just started posting um, pretty much daily. I didn't post on weekends, but I posted on work days. It was part of my my like motion. I get to yeah. work. I make my coffee. I make my list, my to-do list, my goals for the day. I do a cold call block. I do some email admin. I write my LinkedIn posts. I go to lunch. I return from lunch. I check my LinkedIn. I book a couple meetings off of whoever responded or pass some leads along to other SDRs. I write emails. I do some research. I may do another cold call block. I go home. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how I started posting on LinkedIn. And and like through that, I think I kind of found found my voice and um, definitely had a couple moments where I maybe piss some people off and that's okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared this with you, but there was such a distinct moment where one of your posts inspired me to like take the LinkedIn thing more seriously. And it, it pissed me off so much because I was having like a really brutal day prospecting, like just could not get a cold call answered, no emails responded to. And then you made this post. You're like, my manager told me I need more pipeline. Does anybody want to buy gong question mark? <laughs> and you booked like six or seven opportunities off of it. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like that is so unfair. I need to go create that for myself. So thank you for the unintended motivation and inspiration there. But it absolutely drove me crazy. And I was like, I I got to have that. I got to make that happen. That's really funny. I don't think I booked six or seven meetings for myself off of that, just to be clear. Right. Yeah, territories and whatnot, but yeah, I, I was still like, I was like, you're kidding me, like one post and that and that worked, and uh, it did. And it, yeah, but, I, 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 but obviously that's me being cheeky, right? It's like, yeah, you know, and that's why I think that post works because it's I'm I'm clearly being funny, and I'm also like um, maybe cashing in on some of the value that I've tried to create. Totally. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend that be everybody's LinkedIn strategy as soon as you get online. And then also like the thing is, is that joke only works once and then you're kind of. <laughs> yeah, you can't post every day. Like, yeah. Wait, so you, you mentioned something that's so true. Like Gong is a very interesting culture in the fact that like I never felt any pressure not to post. Like I knew there wouldn't be judgment. It, it wasn't like also just to clarify this, Gong does not like force people to post to LinkedIn. People are always no. like. It was like mandated, like, no, people just choose to, but they're very like, 
that they, they are open to it and they don't push back at all. When you think about your next move, like, is that something that is going to factor in your decision, like throughout an interview process, et cetera, making sure that you can be your full authentic self on social media without worrying about like company ramifications? I, I mean, probably it's something I'm maybe going to think about a little bit, but I can't imagine someone would like go think about hiring me and look at my LinkedIn profile (laughs) and then be like, Sarah, we love you. We love everything you do, but we got to tell you, if we hire you, you got to, got to stop this LinkedIn. Like that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Most of the opportunities that I've even been looking at are people who have reached out to me on LinkedIn because they know me. Like I haven't, I haven't actually submitted my application blindly anywhere. Like the couple jobs that I'm interviewing for presently are because somebody remembered me from prospecting them as an SDR. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 couple opportunities that I'm literally in, in the process of interviewing for, like I'm gonna interview tomorrow. I prospected them like five years ago as an SDR on LinkedIn. They remembered my outreach and then they remembered me five years later because I keep showing up on their feed every once in a while and they go, ha 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 ha. She's funny. I remember that silly message she sent me on LinkedIn. And then they had a need and they thought, hmm, I need, I got to hire some people. Oh, you know who I've always been interested in working with? It's that girl that keeps showing up on my LinkedIn feed. And then they pinged me and they said those exact things. They were like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. You prospected me five years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, well, I keep seeing you and, you know, I've got this role opening up and I thought of you do you think you'd be interested in interviewing? And I'm like, tell me more about the opportunity. Of course, I'd be interested in working with you. I also remember you from when I prospected you. You were nice to me. <laughs> so rare. It's that a, stands out so meeting. much. Yeah. <laughs> Two things that stand out are like good outreach and a nice prospect. Like that's a rare combination. So yeah, makes sense. That's so cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the opportunities and the doors that it does open just by putting yourself out there a little bit. Like my life has changed dramatically in the last year because of it. And I wouldn't have the job I have now. I wouldn't have anything. You wouldn't be doing this podcast. I wouldn't be doing this pod. Like, and honestly, the way I think about my, and this is something I wanted to ask you about. Like, if you had asked me three years ago, like, what does the future for JC look like? I'm like, I want to be in sales. And then I want to be a sales manager. And then I want to be a VP of sales. And then I want to be a CRO. And I want to climb the corporate ladder and contribute to my 401k. And then if I'm smart with my money, by the time I'm 55, maybe my social security and my 401k and my equity will be enough. Like I had this very linear, classic corporate ladder approach to my future. And because of this LinkedIn thing, and it the fact that it's allowed me to start a side business and start this podcast. I'm like, oh, I can probably do my own thing in a few years. And it's like completely transformed the way that I view how I'm going to like create success for myself. Has it done that for you? Like where where do you kind of envision the future for Sarah being? So Jesse, you and I are really different people because you had you had a, an idea in your head from when you graduated from college of what your life would look like and um my senior year of college i was like oh back i'm gonna be a broadcast journalism they don't make any money and they work crazy hours and they 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 write news that they don't believe in and it's all subsidized by you know like <laughs> yeah yeah i was having um a, like a crisis then and then i was like well what am i gonna do and that's why i ended up selling jeans at the buckle when i graduated <laughs> from college because i didn't know and then the way i started working for the nsda was my coach called me from college and said i found a job for you i think you should take it <laughs> And I was like, anything's better than selling jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Buckle, but yeah, yeah. definitely an upgrade. <laughs> I mean, I may have some things against like the Buckles. Like I would not voluntarily buy a Buckle clothes. Maybe it's changed, but I had a lot of Buckle. Because <laughs> you have to wear Buckle and you have, a, there's a layers rule. The, the Buckle look is layered. So you have to be wearing a certain number of layers. 
And I was like, dude, how many shirts can I put on? <laughs> <laughs> like I would wear like two different pairs of socks and I'd layer them so you could tell they were layered to meet my layering requirement. Um, anyway. I, might, I might have to try that. I've never, I've never, I've never given that look a, a shake, but uh, yeah, it's sounds, a, sounds different. It would stand out. People like that. That guy's got a lot guy's of got socks. Layers. <laughs> that guy's layered. Like an, like an ogre, an onion. Um, it was fine because it was like December in Ohio. Um, but uh, and and then I moved to Iowa, and then it was January in Iowa, which was even colder. Um, I'm like a, I'm like a person who I. I look at opportunities and I go, do I think I could do that? Would I have fun doing that? Hmm. There's this door in front of me. Do I want to open it? And then I go, yeah, or no. (laughs) And so that's why I've worked at nonprofits. I was a middle school teacher. I worked at, I worked for a church at one point. Um, I was doing a bunch of shows and coaching and, you know, I just did a bunch of stuff. I do, I do a bunch of stuff. I like doing things. So I've got all these random side hustles that I'm like, how did I get this side hustle? I don't know. <laughs> Someone knocked on the door and said, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, yeah, I could do that. That sounds fun. <laughs> That's awesome. I-, I wish I had a little bit more of that in me. I'm like, I've got my next like 20 years planned out. And sometimes that just creates like rigor and structure that is just not inducive to like mental health. <laughs> and I'm like always in a rush and I've got this trajectory planned out. So I admire your ability to like, go with the flow and then also just have faith that it's going to work out. Have you kind of like always had that ability to like trust that the result's going to be okay? Do you ever struggle with like feeling like you're doing enough or setting yourself up well, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I, I think I, I don't think that there's a single human being who's never felt that way. Um, and so, yes, I do have that. Like sometimes I'm like, man, I should have, I should have a 10 year plan. I should have things in front of me that I want to do. Um, but I'm, but, and I do, like I have, I set goals for myself um, and I try to reach them, but I think I'm much more fluid. And I do think that I was probably born that way. And mm-hmm. that's just who I am. I'm the middle of seven children. So. Wow. Um, There's like, like there's that, you have to be a certain amount of flexible when you're all homeschooled in the 15 passenger van. <laughs> Trying this to make it to violin so lessons on time. <laughs> um, do you, do you feel like you're, um, cause your personality like would stand out in a room of a thousand people. Do you feel like that came from being one of seven and like needing to stand out or, or is it just inherently born? Um, it's very flattering. I'm, I like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. (laughs) I am who I am. And um, I think the, uh, like the feedback that I've gotten is sometimes you just got to tone it down, Sarah, just tone it down. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that feedback. I hate that feedback. Fuck that feedback. Yeah. You do you, you keep doing like, no, seriously, this, I think this is like a good, a good lesson. Like being you whatever you is works so much better than anything else like over time it just it it lands better and you can keep it up because it's like actually authentic when i think about your linkedin profile when i think about the approach i've tried to take is like you said you're not trying to replicate chris orlob because you're not chris orlob like that would not have worked if you were just trying to post stuff like chris orlob you were just yourself and i've tried to be myself and i think that in work a lot of times people feel pressure to like put on like a corporate mask and obviously to some degree, like you need to not say certain things or like maybe withhold certain beliefs, but to the most you can, I feel like authenticity just lands so much better than anything else. Yeah. So before, before I got on this call with you, I was rowing on my little row machine. You can rent them for like 25 bucks a month. So if you ever like, gosh, I wish I could do more cardio, but it's snowing outside, get yourself a little, little row machine that you can rent for $25. Maybe it's 35, but I'm pretty sure it's 25. Um, that's insane. Either way, that's, yeah. that's so cheap. Yeah. So I've got a little water row machine. And so uh, I was listening to my, one of my friends sent me um, like a series of lectures from Brene Brown. So I just started it. And so I'm like only on the, the introduction, but she talks about like happiness and um, 
why some people are happier than others. And part of it has to do with um, shame. And we live in a culture of shame and comparison. So we, we are constantly sitting in a scarcity mindset where we're, you know, there's, there's only so many deals we can close. There's only so many opportunities mm-hmm. and um, comparing, comparing ourselves to each other. I'm not on the top of the leaderboard. Therefore I'm a failure. Um, and then she also talks about, well, what, the people who are actually happy, like, what are they, what's the difference? And um, one of the big, like the big difference so far, and she's going to get into more of it later in, in my, my audible, but I haven't gotten there, but it's like self-love. And the idea that you are deserving of love. And part of that shows up by being authentic. And the opposite of authenticity is the desire or the um, willingness to try to fit in and Hmm. molding yourself to be something that you perceive to be likable by other people. And one of the things that I was thinking about is that so that can be quite contentious with our role in sales, because as salespeople, we need to be likable in order to earn Hmm. trust to get people to like us. Um, But uh, people are smart and they they can sniff it out and they can sniff out tryhards. And nobody, for whatever reason, we get really turned off by people we think are tryhards. Mm-hmm. And that's that person who's really trying really hard to fit in and really trying to be, be this thing. So like, it's like, I don't know, it's like a snake eating its own tail. It's like, what do I need? I need to be authentic, but I also need to be likable, but I, and I need Can't this person. Too likeable. Like, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. so I think, yeah, I don't know. Th- those like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like on LinkedIn, I see a lot of people who might be approaching the way that they're creating content through a scarcity mindset and a, I have to be authentic there. Therefore I must overshare. Therefore I have to put certain things out there about myself because I want people to like me because for some reason, a follower count is, is a way that I can measure my self-worth and it's like external validation. Yeah. And, um, and then they get caught in this chasm because they're, because the way that, people, especially in America are, is if you do happen to show up as your full authentic self, then someone's going to make fun of you for it. (laughs) Facts. And and so, and so you can't ever, you can't ever win. So, um, you internally have to have like the shift of like, I'm okay with me. Would I get a beer with me? Yes, I would, because I like me. And I think other people would like getting a beer with me and that's okay. <laughs> and and it's okay and that I'm not, not for everyone. And yeah. Fine. Yeah. And that's okay too. But like, um, yeah, I was, I was like listening to that and I was just thinking about like the, the concept of feeling like, do I like myself and am I happy with myself? And I think for me, the answer is yes. And I think that's because I, I that's because a bunch of things, but I think part of it is because the way that the way that my family was and the way that we were raised, I didn't have as much of like the comparison and pressure that I think like the American school system creates. And Mm. um, like, we were just really allowed to just be free in ourselves and our weirdness was like loved and celebrated. And sure. We like tease each other and we're still mean to each other sometimes. Like I think my, my family had enough of like this groundwork where I think most of my siblings grew up liking themselves enough. And so I guess I can be stupid on the internet and it comes across as authentic because it is. (laughs) Can confirm. I met Sarah in person. She's weird in person and online and it is all awesome. And in this interview. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I think that's such a good lesson. I think authenticity just just wins. And to your point, like people are really good at detecting when it's not real. Like so, even on Zoom, that's something that I've been surprised by. In person, it's different, but like even on Zoom, you can just tell when someone's like putting on a facade. And uh, I think people love it when you're not and you're just real. Um, an example of that, and something you talked about earlier, is like disagreeing with people. Like you said, you would push back with your managers when the advice they get, like. How rare is that in sales when a prospect says something and, and you just like 
push back and disagree. Like that's something I always thought you did a really good job of. Oh, thank you. When I would listen to your calls, but you'd, you'd like challenge people all the time. Be like, I don't think you're thinking about this the right way. Has, did that come from debate? Cause like you've got this really cool debate background. And now that I'm thinking about like the way you would sell, I kind of see some of that like overlap. Is that kind of the, the catalyst of where you got that ability? Probably, probably. Yeah. Like pro- probably that honed a lot of it. Um, yeah. My, my family is a kind of family that, um, you know, they like to have arguments for argument's sake. And when they like to discuss big topics or scary topics, like something political that you would probably never say in the workplace is something that's going to come up at our kitchen table. Nice. Like, and, uh, and my family's, you know, I don't, people aren't, people will yell and get passionate because they can, because they are. And then everyone's fine after the conversation ends. Like nobody really walks away with their feelings hurt because it's all just for the sake of debate. So we definitely have that in my family from always. And that's just how we are. Um, my mom's like, you know, Irish Catholic and my dad's also from a big family. They had six kids. And then, um, and then debate does a lot of that debate. So, so I did the speech part. There's like in speech and debate, there's speech, which is like interpretation of literature, or you write speeches, you do limited preparation speeches where you do, you research something and you put a speech together and then go present it. Some of them are informative, persuasive. Um, some of them are deconstructing communication. That's called rhetorical criticism. And then there's debate, which is here's a big topic. And there's a bunch of different ways you can answer this question. <clears throat> but you're either against against it or for mm-hmm. it. And, and you walk into a room and you flip a coin. And that's how you decide what you're going to what side of the argument you're going to be debating that round. And then next round, you might flip a coin and get the other side. So you're, you're constantly having to look at problems from, from both sides. Um, but as a result, that means that your speech and debate team is always like, you have conversations like the ones I had at my dinner table, you're having them in the team room. <laughs> and my college speech and debate team was, we had people from all over. We had people from, I was from Ohio, but my school was in Kentucky. We had people from the Bronx, New York, New York, and we had people from California, from LA and from San Francisco. And then we had people from Wichita, Kansas, all different ethnicities, um, all different identities. And, um, you know, you've got one kid whose family is like owns a tobacco farm and is doing dip in the team room and another family who's, you know, like totally opposite. So you can just imagine the kind of conversations that all come out and we're all working toward the same thing, which is winning that year. Um, but yeah, like there's just a lot of, there's, you know, if you, if you've always been in, in that kind of environment, then of course, when you're trying to solve a problem, you go, well, well, that doesn't sound right. If you hear, if you hear someone salute, that doesn't <laughs> sound right. And you just get used to saying like, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Can you, why are you doing it that way? <laughs> and, um, I think I got lucky because I was in all of those environments that that never was that hasn't been very hard for me to get used to doing in sales because it's just something that we've always done going, huh, why would we do that? <laughs> why are we running? And I do that internally in companies, too. Why are we running our enablement sessions this way? It's no, one, no one's going to remember that. <laughs> I, I It's so simple, right? Like, wait, why, why would you think about it like that? Yeah, wait, but why? Like, so many people wouldn't say that. Right. And, and I, I've, I've admired like your ability to do that. I think it's really unnatural in a work setting when leadership's doing something, when a prospect says something like you just want to, cause you're trying to be likable, like you just go with it and you run with it. But those moments where you're like, wait, but like that, that doesn't really check out <laughs> like based on all these other things. Uh, so it's kind of cool hearing like where that background came from. I'm learning so much about you. This also <laughs> makes me feel a little bit guilty. I'm like thinking about how little I know about most of my coworkers, but I guess it would be a, a long work day if you're having like hour long conversations around everyone's backgrounds. But like, this is eye opening. I, I didn't know any of this, and we worked together for like three years. So yeah, but we also worked together in a remote setting. So I think we probably True. know a lot more of these things about each other if we were in an office, which is why, um, 
I know a lot of people are like, remote first, but I'm like, but uh, I want to go talk to people <laughs> because I know that like companies yeah. or corporations, they're not people, but there are people inside them that make them a business and they get work and run. And, and I want to go, I want to go get to know them because I like, I'm the same way. I'm still like charged up by people. Like that's how I get energies, like being around other human beings. And that is so hindered on Zoom. It's just like impossible to fully replicate that. I, I also crave, I, just, I like people. I think I just like people. Yeah. I like being around people. I live for the water cooler conversations that turn into like three hours where you end up not working, but you're having great conversation. Like I definitely miss those opportunities in, in a remote world. Yeah. I think even introverts like people because humans are one of the most social, if not the most social mm -hmm. like animals on the planet. That's why why our our systems of government and work, et cetera, our communities all work the same. Like if you think about like humans are this apex predator, but not really. Like if it's me versus a lion, I'm gonna lose. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you could like act like a lion and an outwit or something like that. But yeah, if it's just physical, you're yeah, probably probably pretty screwed. Yeah. So humans became the most dominant animal on the planet in terms of like controlling resources and, and creating these like systems because of society, because we have social systems and because we have the desire to be together. And and we 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 would, you know, die on the side of a mountain unless you're like a really like like you're a bear grills and you mean it. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't, you know, so, so I think like the desire to be around people is super normal and natural. And, um, I'm a big fan of the idea of like, um, offices and companies that have, like they have offices where you can go in person, but they're flexible about when you do. But that is something that I'm like looking for in my next company is just being able to go be around people. Cause I think it contributed to my burnout the fact that I was sitting in the same office in by myself for years literal years back to back trying to like get behind this idea that was like becoming bigger and vaguer and mm -hmm. knowing people less that that's just makes it really really hard to like feel connected to your work and again I don't want to be defined by my work I want to be something beyond that but you spend most of your life working so you should you should like it at least a little bit. <laughs> I, I want to dive into the burnout thing because this is like a very common problem. It's something I've experienced. Um, what did burnout like look like for you? When did you start to to really like feel it or notice it? So um, my husband noticed me being burnt out before like hmm. I was willing to admit that I was burnt out. He had been asking me to quit my job for like a year and a half. And I was like, no. Well, also, like, my husband worked for a big tech company and all of those layoffs were happening. And I was like, if I quit my job and you get laid off, <laughs> we have a mortgage. What will we do? <laughs> right. um, Go back to Buckle. I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, if they'll have me, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, Not after what you said about layering. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, no. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Buckle. I take it back. <laughs> Sarah, I was I was hoping Buckle was going to be one of the sponsors of the pod, and now I feel like we really tarnished that opportunity. I'm so sorry. Uh, you, you say nice things about Buckle because it's you know. There you go. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by the Buckle. <laughs> Such a random random collaboration there. Like you can't even see the jeans I'm wearing, and yeah. it's completely unrelated. But we'll, we'll make it work. You make, we'll make, it, you work. make it work. Yeah. Um, what was the question? What we're talking about burnout? Sorry. Uh, yeah, you were saying like your husband has been asking, please quit your job. We're a year and a half later when you like finally admit. Yeah. Burnout. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think I knew by then I knew, I knew for a while before I, before I decided to leave. Um, but I was really trying to like find a way to get invigorated. Um, so we'll rewind a little bit. So I think there's like a couple things that contributed to the, f the feeling of burnout. Um, number one, um, there, there were other challenges that happened in my, my personal life where we just lost a couple family, family members back to back. And 
I had a couple family members who were going through some pretty intense mental health crises and um, it was just really overwhelming. And then on top of that, we had moved to a new city where we only knew a couple people and we, we have friends that live in New York, but it still takes like an hour to go see them. So it's like, it's not like I'm going over to my neighbor's house and, you know, we're baking cupcakes together or muffins or whatever. So the feeling of like social isolation and like this abstract turmoil that you really like can't, can't be with your family to grieve with them. You can't go fix Hmm. someone's mental health problem. It's not like you got in a car accident. We take the car to the shop and get it fixed. I help you call the insurance. Like there's nothing you can do there. Um, And then the, the isolation of being at work and, and because you're alone in your little tiny office by yourself and you're only having a zoom call every once in a while, none of your coworkers know what you're going through. Your manager can't really, they can't see you. They don't see you on a regular basis. They get a slack from you here and there. And you're trying to have a stiff upper upper lip. So there's no like understanding of, there's no ability to truly be empathetic or to be supportive because you can't, you can't see the suffering. And, um, and I think that was just like, so then instead it becomes like, Hey, you, I know, I know you're at 120% of your quota this quarter, but we really could use the extra push. Can you can you bring in a few more deals? Hey, I know you hit your your target already. You've already hit your prospecting goals, but your numbers are low this week. And I need you to, you're an example for the team. Everyone looks up to you. I need you to do more. And um, like, it just felt like I was being asked to do a lot, but I had already done so much and there was no opportunity to like, just be sad. Mm. <laughs> um, so I think all of that was like contributing to burnout. And, um, and then, you know, we, I was just sprinting like really hard, really, hor- really like I, you know, every six months or so I was getting promoted to the next thing at Gong <clears throat> at six months to a year. And um, which required like a, a lot of, really heavy days. Like during like peak pandemic, when I was living in Berkeley, I would wake up before six in the morning to start taking calls with companies in Europe. This is before they had like an EMEA team, but then I'd also be taking calls with people in Australia. So I'd be on the phone after 7 PM with an Australian deal I'm trying to close. And then, and you could do that because there's nothing else to do because you're not allowed to go outside. And if you do go outside, you're in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So someone's going to yell at you for not wearing a mask on your run. (laughs) Um, so you're like, and then your apartment's not big enough to have a little water rower. <laughs> so you're like, well, I guess I'll just, you know, write more yep. emails tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think I just like, I worked too much and, um, I had, I was just like, and there was no, there was no connection to anything anymore. Um, mm-hmm. so I just was like, I just need a, I just need a break. I tried really hard. I tried really hard to get excited again, but I couldn't. And so I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a break because there's no sabbatical program. <laughs> That'd be nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> Maybe we should make a push for that. I think, um, I think that, you... yeah, I think that company, like, I think startups should have sabbatical programs. would be awesome. And um, the concept of just like, uh how you unlimited pto ends up ends up backfiring and i think it'll work for it like works for a little while especially if you have like really young driven people but then you end up losing talent because in the long run people just get yeah unlimited pto is like the biggest facade ever because your number does not change so it's like Take as much time off as you want, but you perform the exact same. Yeah. I mean, I used to work, we we would have like, um, uh, like these, like, oh, you can, you know, the whole company is taking off the first day of the quarter, first two days of the quarter. I always worked on those days because I was so anxious about <clears throat> starting off the quarter with a yeah. big 
goose egg. <laughs> so, so like also that's like me, right? If we talk, go back to like the Brene Brown stuff, that's like me having a scarcity mindset and mm-hmm. me feeling like a lot of pressure to perform and me feeling the pressure to be at the top of the leaderboard and me feeling like um, people, people have certain expectations out of me because I've been at the company for so long and I've got, you know, so-and-so followed me on LinkedIn, therefore they think I'm great, but really I'm just a normal person. So <laughs> now I have to, I've created this concept of what it is to be Sarah Brazier. Therefore I have to fulfill it. And it's all in my head, right? That's all yeah. something I made up. <laughs> no, this is so helpful. To, I, I struggle with this a lot. Um, I already naturally inherently put a ton of pressure on myself. I am wired to compare myself to others, which is bad, and I'm working on it. And then you put that in a sales industry where you literally see how much money you've closed compared to everyone else. Like it's the most, it's the easiest industry to compare yourself to others. It's it's encouraged, right? Yeah. Like the leaderboard is shown every week. And then this LinkedIn thing, I'm like, oh, now I have to be the best seller ever because people think I am. Because sometimes I post about how this cold call tactic helped me book more meetings. Yeah, and it compounds and compounds and compounds and i i it's when i when i heard you say burnout i was like curious if that like added to it totally do you feel like you have learned anything this past few months to prevent you from getting back to that place like when you do jump back into work well like i'll tell you one thing that i started doing is all of the leaderboard stuff that would get sent out over emails i created a folder and just direct sent it there and I never saw it. So I was a little disconnected because I was like, oh, you closed a deal. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> but, Congrats. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like that, um, that's not like, that's your deal. It's not my deal. And the only thing that I need to worry about is me. And that was helping a lot. Like not having to see, hmm. um, not having to be sitting in this place where like, Am I doing as well as in comparing myself and just focusing on like, well, what, what's my task at hand? What's my objective? And that's all I need to worry about. I don't really have to worry about JC's number because I'm not JC's manager and JC hasn't asked me for help and uh, his deals aren't my deals. And if JC does great, that's great for him. But if I'm sitting here watching his deals unfold, then what am I doing with my own? <laughs> so, um, that was helping me a lot uh, toward the end, but I think, um, yeah, I think I think uh, like just um, taking a break from LinkedIn was super helpful. There was a period of time where um, I was on LinkedIn posting a lot, and then I and then someone someone maybe thought they were being helpful. I don't know, but they forwarded me like a Reddit thread of people being mean about me on Reddit, and and that just like. It's like, what? <laughs> I didn't realize I had haters. <laughs> um, and so like uh, desensitizing, I can never say that word, desensitizing myself to negative feedback that is not helpful. I think it is okay mm-hmm. to receive criticisms if they are critiques. I want a critique, not a criticism. You can make your LinkedIn post better this way. I think you should rethink the type of content that you're posting because it's not helping you in ABC way. That's great. But talking about, you know, why someone sucks isn't very fun. Um, And no one needs to hear it because we all suck and we're all great at the same time. That's the paradox of humanity. You know, (laughs) we can be multiple things at once. Um, I had Anthony Natoli on episode one last week and he mentioned the Reddit thread about him that was just shredding him. So this is a theme yeah, and that's really shitty. That's <laughs> super annoying. Yeah. And the thing is, if you bring it up, then the Reddit people will find it and be like, oh my God, look at this person yeah. complaining about how they wanted it. There's that whole like, well, they wanted it. Like you, it's like slut shaming. Like, <laughs> well, she was wearing it. So she must've wanted it. Yeah. She wouldn't have been wearing that. Like you, you, why would you think that by posting on the internet, you wouldn't get this kind of negative feedback? Like you clearly you want it. Like, <laughs> no, that's not. I can't imagine being like actually famous. Like 
We are. We're not famous. As micro, <laughs> we are as micro of an influencer as you can be. Correct. Like, think micro influencer and like divide it by ten. Like that's where we are in the sales LinkedIn world, which is inherently really tiny as well. And it's still a lot. Like there are so many people that just suck. It's more like, yeah. Like what are you doing? I can't imagine actually having any level of a following. Yeah. That'd be exhausting. Yeah. But I'm glad you were able to tune that out. I'm still working on that. Well, you could do like one or two things. You can stop posting on LinkedIn for a while and then wait till the bad feeling goes. Because you, cause there's, you, there's a logical part of your brain that's like, well, statistically, if I just do the math on this with the amount of views that I have and the amount of people saying nice things to me, both via DM and via comment, and people literally telling me like, I tried this thing, it worked, you helped me yep. compared to the four people consistently being mean to me on Reddit, those are like, you know, the amount you're helping far supersedes or the amount you're either helping or like having a non-impact versus the four people who somehow get so angry that you exist when they could just block you. (laughs) I know. Don't follow me. I just don't follow me. It's such a simple fix. It's like um, you logically can go, oh my gosh, like I shouldn't care. You're, you, you're bored and you're sad. And there's something that I should feel a lot of actual empathy for you because if this is, if this is what you're doing for you to either stay entertained or to feel like your life has meaning, then something, something must be kind of wrong with you. (laughs) Yeah. What a waste of energy. Seriously. Yeah, so I should feel sad for you because you're not like taking those feelings out on, in the gym or, you know, in your Tai Chi class. <laughs> Imagine if you... <laughs> tai Chi is so slow motion. You're like, oh, I'm so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad right now. Look at how mad I am. <laughs> I'm in the ocean. I'm so <laughs> But We talked about this last week, though. Like, I, I said the exact same thing. Like, the few people who have been immensely impacted by you those notes so make it worth it like three people reaching out and being like dude i literally had my best month ever because of this this and this i get a hundred mean messages and like like, it makes it worth it uh but it still drives me crazy that people like spend their energy and their time like dude like invest that time somewhere else please for your own good well that's why the Brene brown stuff was really resonating with me this morning because she was just talking about we just have a culture of shame and it's like um Mm -hmm. Those people are stuck in a scarcity mindset and they can't think of an action to solve their problem, to feel like they have more, to feel like they have abundance. And um, they don't think that they're deserving of self-love. And so instead of loving themselves and going, yes, I can, I can be something, I can do something, I can create, I have wealth. They instead go, it's, it makes me feel a lot better if I just shame this person Mm -hmm. that I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And that is sad. It is sad. It is sad. But I I think like to anyone listening who is on the fence about putting themselves out there in some capacity, like just do it and then ignore the bad stuff. It'll happen. People make fun of you. Maybe if you really make it big one day, you'll have your own Reddit thread. Yeah. But you'll probably positively impact enough people where you will, also feel like it's wildly worth it. The other thing that Brene Brown was talking about is that there's this idea that in order to be worth something, it has to be in this public space or um, like you need to have this crazy impact where, you know, dozens of people are emailing you on a regular basis and telling you how you've changed their life. And, and that's the other thing that I don't, I don't think um, you really like people need is that like just being enough being enough is be, being in abundance is positively impacting your immediate family is like showing up where you mm-hmm. need to show up is being vulnerable in the places where it matters most. I can share all my feelings with a bunch of strangers on the internet, but if I'm not willing to have candid conversations with my husband about our relationship, am I really being vulnerable where it matters? Um, wow. So I think like that's the other piece of the puzzle is that I think a lot of people go, I have to be authentic. I have to be vulnerable. Therefore, let me create this Instagram, you know, presence where I'm sharing 
all of this stuff. And it's like, you don't, you don't need to do that. That's not going to really make you feel fulfilled if you're not able to have the real conversations with the real people show up and talk about the heavy stuff, go to, you know, the people in my family who are struggling with their mental health problems and actually be there with them or go talk to a therapist about how that affects me. You know, if I can't do that, if I can't be vulnerable and authentic there, then who gives a shit if I talk to you about my top 10 objection handling techniques? <laughs> Ms. Brazier, I think that is a mic drop moment. That is such good advice. Um, and thank you for the last like hour of your time. It's so good to get to talk to you. I'm going to ask to have you on again. Selfishly, I think I'm really excited about this podcast because like I'm just getting to connect with friends and get to know them better. I hope people enjoy it. If not, that's all right. I am. And I'm learning a lot myself. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, outside of like LinkedIn, if people want more Sarah Brazier, if people want to find you. I mean, where should they look? LinkedIn. My husband made me a website and I think it's, Ooh. I think it's let's talk sales.com, but I don't know. So hold that thought. Let me get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> But definitely LinkedIn and, um, you know, that's it. That's it. My Instagram, I haven't posted on in five years and probably keep it that way. <laughs> and go back to your, your college Twitter too, just oh, in yeah. case there's any gold left oh, there. Oh, yeah. There's, it's, nice. um, for a long time, <laughs> I used this app called RunKeeper and it like would post my runs automatically. So for, there was like three years of just like, Sarah ran five miles in 52 minutes. Sarah ran three miles in 30 minutes. And it was just, <laughs> and then my friends who were still on Twitter would be like, great run, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> but only like every six months. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. It's great content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great run, Sarah. I love it. Well, Sarah, th seriously, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's so fun getting to talk to you. And I, I would grab a beer with you. Uh, just in case you you were wondering, yeah. you, you are a person that want to grab a beer with. So next time I'm in New York, February actually, let's do it. You should grab yeah. a beer. Cool. I'm down. Let's beer away. Awesome. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace.